Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. You're, this is episode 238. We're recording this live on uh, March 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, good evening. How are you doing? I am well. You, on the other hand, sound maybe not so well. <laughs> I've been better. I've got, um, I've, I've been visited by COVID. And so I, I, I'm isolating and things. But because I'm isolating where we're recording, then it means I don't have to miss the show. So how cool is that? How cool is that? The COVID fairy gave you a visit. Hey, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how our minds distinguish between various social influences. Uh, and later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about um, how would you approach a product that's uh, very broken? Uh, feeling overwhelmed potentially by new job and the controversial opinion about whether or not paper prototy prototyping is useful or not. But first we got some programming notes for you. Um, the next episode for 1202, the human factors podcast is live. Barry, what is going on over on the 1202 podcast? So on twelve and two podcast on Monday, if I get myself sorted out, the we'll be talking about muscular skeletal disorders, and an app that's been bought to us, bought to the UK anyway by Flex Health and Arco, that is aiming to not only support muscular skeletal health in your day to day life, but actually if you've then got problems, it brings uses AI to bring you some um, some physiotherapy. So been interesting to work out you know, really what about musculoskeletal health and, and what we can actually do about it. So that'll go live on Monday, UK time. Super cool. I'm looking forward to that episode. Uh, in other news, we do have uh, upcoming here on Friday, April 1st at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 Eastern, we do have the next HFES presidential town hall. I'll be sitting down with a slew of folks from HFES, talk about the latest and greatest from HFES and see what's going on. Uh, our last one was pretty cool, so highly recommend that y'all come by and check it out. We'll also have it in the feed here. Uh, so if you miss it live, you can always listen to it here. All right, well, I think it's time that we get into this first part of the show. Yes, we know why you're here. It's... Human Factors News. This is the part of the show all about uh, bicycling. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You know, sometimes we, we pick these stories, and you pick them, so it's going to be a great time. Barry, what's the story this week? So this week is all about how our minds distinguish between various social influences. So when people change their opinion after they've received additional information from another person, this is an example of in, information informational social influence. But when people revise their views because they want to be socially accepted, researchers refer to normative social influences. Previously, it was uncertain which neural mechanisms underlie these two different situations. Researchers characterize brain activities that occur if people have been socially influenced to change their opinion. The study showed that our brain uh, solves social conflicts, that is, the differences of opinion, be the same neural machinery that it uses to solve its own internal subjective conflicts. A specific region of the brain takes the two, fa two factors into account, and that is how confident we are in our opinion and how polite we are obliged to be towards others. This study has shown that uh, people tend to adjust their answers when their confidence was low, irrespective of whether they thought their partner was a human or not. And that'll become relevant when we do a bit more discussion. 
the this information influence was controlled by an activity in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex or DACC which is easier of the brain a region of the cerebral cortex test subjects are also exhibited more conformity towards other opinions if they receive their confirmation from their communication partner this normative influence on, arose only when they believed that their partner was human as did the correlation with DACC activity Moreover, the normative influence was associated with stronger functional connections between the DACC and other social processing regional regions of the brain. This was not the case for the informational influence. So, Nick, were you influenced into believing the article? Look, th there's um, some really interesting... How do I put this? There's some really interesting nuances here that I think we could really dig into from a human factors perspective. And I think it really will challenge us to apply it because I'm looking at your general impressions here, but mine, uh, I, I love social science stuff. And I think social psych is a really cool topic. And this adds sort of the, um, the neuropsych onto it. And I think that's fascinating. I don't, I not strong feelings either way, but it's, um, we're going to try here folks. <laughs> Barry. <laughs> Um, what I are mean, your from, thoughts? From my perspective, it's what it's another one of these the things that is like it's cool. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This whole social psych stuff is cool. The the um the, the neuro behind it, the neuroscience behind it is really interesting because there is fundamentally there's there's still so much we don't know about the brain, how it functions, and all that sort of stuff. But in a practical sense, what does it give us new? What what what's it actually telling us? What what is what is it that I can then go and take away and do something differently because of it? Um Part of me thinks that that there isn't anything there yet. Um, though this talk about where they talk about um, humans and non-humans giving um, um, giving supportive influences, which we'll come on to when we talk a bit more about the article itself, um, is interest interesting. But do we want to dig into a bit of um, I guess some of that psychology that 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 social psych stuff that you like and you think is so cool? Yeah. Um, do, you, do you want to dig into some of the some of them sort of concepts that we should be thinking about with this? Yeah, I think, you know, we're talking about this this study here in terms of influencing others, and there are several different ways to think about social influence. Um, this is going to take it back to like social psych 101, right? We're going to talk a lot about, about a lot about that stuff. But I think one thing for us as human factors practitioners is to really stretch and talk about how social influences can affect things like cognition, performance, decision-making. And I think some of those key human factors principles are actually affected quite a bit by some of the other stuff going on socially. So let's open our minds. Let's stretch our, uh, stretch our uh, brain muscles and <laughs> try to get this um, all linked up for y'all. Uh, so let's, let's take a look at, um, yeah, social social influences from a social psychology perspective. So there's a couple different ways to think about this, right? There's um, let's start with like informative social influence, or this might be called social proof, and another uh, other people call it that. So this is when people feel the need to really be informed by accurate information, and when they don't have the confidence in their, and especially when they don't have the confidence in their own knowledge. Um, and so this is why, you know, in a lot of cases, people um, go out and search news stories and there's a whole bunch of issues with trust and social um, influence when it comes to misinformation and things on the news. So, I mean, it, this is a really big one. 
Um, but basically, when they turn to others in hope of getting that correct information, um, when they accept that information, whether or not it's accurate, uh, that person is subjected to social influence. So there's a whole conversation right now about how uh, misinformation is handled from news sources and from those in your community. Uh, someone could spout misinformation about vaccines or uh, transmission of COVID or even COVID itself and relevant to you, Barry. So like, I, I, there's a lot of different ways in which misinformation can manifest. And it's a, it's a form of social influence. Um, do you want to talk about normative social influence? Yeah, so the, that second type of conformity is normative, normative social influence, where people want to fit in amongst friends and colleagues. And fundamentally, they want to be liked and respected by other members of their social group. They value the opinions of other members and seek to maintain their standing within that group. Therefore, people will just adjust their own attitudes and behaviours to match the accepted norms of that group. And so if that's your local community or your local family group or your lo local friendship group, this conformity with the with the majority may involve, you know, the, the fa fashion trends that are popular amongst a group of friends, or adopting rituals of of a religious group, or watching a particular TV show, or not wearing masks, or not getting vaccines. You know, all them sort of things. If if people within your circle are, uh, do or not either doing or not doing something, you will generally try and um, conform with that to to stay within your normative group. Do you want to hit us up about social influence and conformity? I do, but I want to pause on normative social influence because I think this has a lot of potential for human factors applications. So when you talk about fitting into a group, um, you know, on the, on the past, I feel like couple shows, we've talked about what working in the workplace uh, could potentially do. And so if you have, you know, those workplace relationships that we talked about last week, um, you might feel more likely to be impacted by these normative social influences if you want to fit in with a group that you like. And if you start sort of pairing that influence with pro-social behavior or, um, you know, or you talk about climate ergonomics, Barry, that's something that you're pa uh, passionate about. And so, uh, you know, pairing that normative social influence with like pro-social behaviors like recycling, if you see your friends doing it and, and they recycle, you might be, you will be more likely to recycle to fit in with that group. If, you know, they are taking their bikes to work, you're going to feel more inclined to take your bike to work too, because that is something that you can relate to them with. And so, um, likewise, if you foster an environment of productivity, I think this is where when we talk about human performance. We can really make that human factors connection here. If you foster a, a an environment of, of, productivity in the workplace and healthy work-life balance, I think that has a huge impact on human factors. So I, I just wanted to highlight that uh, because I think it's so critical for that human factors connection that maybe wasn't apparent at the top when we started this news story. Um, yeah. So yeah, let's, let's talk about social influence because this is um, kind of that other piece of the puzzle, right? This, this can take, uh, this can manifest itself in many different forms. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about conformity, and that's kind of the big one here. So conformity at its base is when somebody adopts the opinions or behaviors of another person or another group. So this often occurs in groups, uh, and, and it usually happens when an individual conforms to those social norms that um, 
are respected by everybody in that group, right? We talked just about that normative social influence. I think this is really getting at that, right? There are other things and uh, that are uh, not behavioral that are also adopted. So they might conform as well to opinions and values, uh, which will impact behaviors, right? And and they express support for some of these views accepted by the group um, and sort of withhold the criticism they have about some of these views and opinions, right? And, and ultimately, um, this does come down to behavior, like these, these uh, withholding of criticism and supporting views will manifest itself in ways that uh, result in human behavior, right? They'll behave in a way that's similar to others in that group. Uh, I don't know. Anything to add to that, Barry? Or do you want to jump into public versus private conformity? Because there's quite a difference. Yeah, before I jump into that, I think it's what, that social influence and conformity is something we see a lot in, in the workplace because because of almost that, um, that, commu- that, that community of um, the workplace and how you seem to fit in what your your perception of what work what your work behavior should be like which all which might be very different to to what you're doing at home so it is quite a, quite an interesting um interesting one um the public versus private conformity is um is super interesting for me because it basically when you look at the, when you're conforming to the social norms of a group um a person may disagree with the opinions that they express or the actions that they take but nonetheless they adopt the behavior that is expected of them and this whole public versus private bit is actually, if, if you've got public conformity, it's involving matching your own behavior to meet the expectation of others. But whilst inside, you might hold a different view. So the example that, the, that we've got here is a student may um, express a liking for a rock band because all of their friends listen to it. However, privately, they may just di- may dislike the music, but they pretend to like it just to fit in with the group. Um, private conformity is actually when a person internalizes the views of a group and adopts that majority of, of opinion as their own. So for, for instance, using the same idea, that the student listens to the music of the rock band that their friends like. Over time, they realize that they too enjoy this type of music. Their own personal opinion has, has changed, private conformity has occurred. So that's really quite interesting about how you, um, how, how you in, internally, internally view and externally view everything that's going on, going on around you. Which is again, if you, if we can influence people to, I mean, well, that's a, that's a key influencing measure about how to get people to take not just talk about and pretend that they 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 like what they're doing for you, but actually internalize it and make them actually feel like what they're doing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a third kind of option here, which is identification. Um, you know, you talk about public, you talk about private. There's identification where. Uh, you know, an individual identifies kind of with other members of a group and conforms to their um, opinions and behaviors. And when they do that, they may seek to gain the favor of other members um, and to be accepted in the group. So it's almost like uh, trying to change yourself to be in that group rather than being in a group by default and and adapting to group think, right? So for example, this might be... um, you know, an, an employee uh, joining an office, right? We keep bringing up the workplace here. They might go bowling as colleagues um, and they might like to go once a week. And I think we actually talked about, you know, actually going out uh, mm. as an example last week. But, you know, they go out to this bowling alley once a week and privately this person might dislike this pastime and prefer to spend it reading. 
Um, I think we talked exactly about this when I was like, I just want to go to the hotel and like hang out. Yes, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, on that, having read the mount like that, which is I'm, first time we've done that out so sort of publicly, what's really the difference between that public versus private and that identification? They're largely the same thing. Well, I think the difference uh, when when it comes to identification is um, sort of the wanting to be accepted into a group versus the public conformity is you're already in a group. This is my understanding. I'm not an expert in this stuff, but public conformity kind of is like you're um, in a group by default, right? Like yeah. identification yes, is almost like I want to fit into this group. And How do I get in that? yeah, yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense. Let's talk about internalization. You want to talk about internalization? So internalization is is another form of opinion conformity where the opinions of the group or minority within that group influences an individual's own options. Uh, the person may not only express the views of the group publicly, but also adopts these new views and regards them as being their own. So a form of private conformity. Um, this internalization of new beliefs frequently occurs in religious groups. Uh, where members privately adopt the spiritual ideas expressed by authority figures as their own personal beliefs, um, which is obviously really interesting because we do have them. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of that um, at the moment around um, everything to do with COVID, everything to do with, I mean, particularly in the States, you've had um, interesting activities. Um, interesting on, on is one way to speak. Them. Um, and so, yeah, you can definitely see um, that sort of behavior occurring on a on, on a regular basis, can't you? Yeah. Internalization is basically the process by which those thoughts and opinions become your own when you're trying to conform to a group. Um, and then the other piece of that is like compliance. This is kind of another form of conformity, which is when somebody requests something that maybe an individual or group, um, they request something for that individual to uh do right it's, it's instructions from another person um and unlike internalization where you are slowly uh, adopting those opinions as your own this doesn't necessarily require that private conformity they actually might reluctantly comply in order to kind of fit in with the group um and and they might be privately doubting that request to do something right uh i i feel like this is Fox News. Um, <laughs> <laughs> internally, they have a memo to be uh, vaccinated. That's their, their, um, that's their sort of, uh, I guess, workplace mandate is they need to be vaccinated, mm -hmm. but they're sowing distrust. And, that's a, um, yes, and so it's like, I don't know. It, it's just a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> weird. But I mean, compliance Right. When when you think about um, complying with these uh, sort of requests, it frequently occurs when a person is asked by an authority figure. Um, and so when you think about authority figures, you're thinking about uh, hierarchical relationships um, uh, most of the time. Right. If, if you have some sort of person of authority, meaning your boss or um, a law enforcement officer or. Uh, somebody who holds public office, you know, any one of these roles, uh, which, which is seen as authoritative figures, um, you might have, uh, I don't know, a, a, you might be more more likely to comply to those, right? You know, you might have drivers complying with the directions given by traffic wardens because they have 
uh, authority over traffic. Students comply with the requests of their teachers um, who also have a position of authority in the classroom. That's very different from obedience. So compliance is is sort of, um, I guess, com- let's talk about the difference. You want to talk about obedience, then we can talk about the difference between them too. Yeah, so obedience is is similar to compliance in that that you're you basically getting people to do as they're told. Um, in the fact the the person modifies their behavior to obey the directions of another, often with positions of authority, but it doesn't actually require the subject to alter his or her own private opinion. Where we see this is in largely in, in hierarchical organizations, such as I mean the military is a really good example where um uh, because you're in that hierarchy and it's an autocratic organization. You get told what to do, you get given an order, you carry it out. That is that obedience, which for me is different to uh, the compliance because the compliance, you may not actually know the person who's given you the um, the direction or the order, but because you respect the position that they're in, and it could be just a, it's a, probably more of a one-off event, you will do it because of the social norms around complying with what you're doing, whereas the obedience is, is doing on a more, much more repetitive and you, you will repeatedly do it. Do you have good a good save? No, no, no. Good save. I brought up hierarchical and compliance and I was wrong. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, but didn't, yeah. I didn't like to say that in public, but you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm calling myself out there. I didn't want anyone else to call me out on Twitter or anything. So, yeah, you're right. I think there's there's a distinct difference. One is because somebody holds a, a position of authority and the other is because there is a hierarchical relationship, you know, cli- compliance versus obedience. Um, and when you talk about that hierarchical relationship, you're, there's also sort of social roles, right? It, it's different in the, in the sense that um, there are roles in which people find themselves. And this could be a human factors application here, too, right? It, it, if you think about the way in which people perform, you talk about human factors practitioner. What does that role do at work? Um, you talk about a UX designer versus UX researcher. What are the differences in those roles? And so... If you think about sort of um, assigning each of these roles with a set of attitudes and behaviors with those roles or responsibilities, even if you're thinking about workplace, right, and the role that that person has to do or the the things that that person has to do in that role, it can influence their actions and opinions, right? They might um, ultimately as, you know, like let's say someone's a designer and they slowly start to think more like a designer because they're in that role and they're getting more experience with those types of things. Likewise, if you're in a research role, you might start thinking about research differently and interacting with other researchers and trying to do that. And if you're a human factors practitioner, who the hell knows what that is? Um, you know, like really. So you have these, these roles, but you know, that when we talk about them in a social sense um, you know, you can, you can think about, being influenced by a number of different roles at one time, right? You wear many different hats, you know, you're a dad, you're a brother, you're a, uh, you're, I don't know, a son, you're a worker, you are a, you name it, right? And Mm so um, you play a professional role, you play a, uh, your profession, and that's associated with different types of behavior. Um, So for example, right, you, People expect a doctor or a naval office to be a little bit more serious than a circus entertainer. Um, it's not always true, but <laughs> but you might try to fulfill this assumption when you are given that role. Uh, if your idea of a doctor is serious, then you might, if you are pursuing a medical degree, 
slowly become less fun and uh, <laughs> throwing shade on doctors here. I'm just kidding. Um, but, he's not, he's not kidding at all. But I mean, you know, there's, there's other types of roles as well too, right? We all know gender roles, family roles, uh, different societal roles. Those can also influence behavior. And this is like classic Zimbardo. Um, if you think back to Psych 101 and the prison experiment, this, you know, Ooh. assigning people to roles uh, and they, they kind of perform it. Do you want to talk about minority influence? Yeah. So while conformity usually occurs in response to, you know, the vast majority of a group coming together and influencing um, other members, individuals or minorities of group can also exhibit social, uh, social influence. Um, so this occurs when individuals present an opinion that is different to, the, to what the, uh, what is held by the majority. So as this opinion is novel and contrary to, to the group norms, the attention of the other members are drawn, is drawn to it, and they are led to then consider the merits of the minority opinion. Because it runs against the accepted beliefs of the group, it cannot rely on normative influence to lead the other members to comply. Um, individual, individually, tend towards a majority-held view um, to feel as though they're part of a group. But this minority view in, usually needs to exert informative influence. By presenting new information, maybe a key fact or a um, key bit of knowledge, as having been overlooked by the majority, a minority can persuade other members to reconsider their opinion. This is known as conversion. Um, if minority influence is able to convert a significant number of people or a sufficient number of uh, members within the group, it will become the majority um, opinion within the group. So many social and political movements, such as the civil rights movement in the US, and uh, use minority influence to change the views of the wider population. So that's something you see quite a lot, as, as it states in in, um, in the political domain, where where you go out and try and um, convert people, almost that one at a time approach, um, to get your minority view to be taken to be by the majority. Yeah, yeah. So so and then you have uh, Cialdini, who yeah. is like king of influence or you know well-known name uh the principles yeah. of influence there's there's several different principles we can go, kind of go through back and forth one by one uh, but we'll start with like reciprocity right and and these are other ways to kind of think about influence right so reciprocity you're basically more inclined to give back when people give um something to you so think about like a gift or uh, a certain behavior or service right i mean there's been studies that have um you know, you send a Christmas card with $20 to somebody and uh, they'll send you one back without even knowing mm -hmm. you um, with money in it because they must they must have just forgot about you and they feel bad. Um, yeah. It's it's rather remarkable thing. Uh, the reciprocity thing. So, I mean, when you think about influence, what's what's up next? So scarcity is basically around if you try and make out that something um isn't going to exist anymore so th there's going to be less of something then people want more of it and it's quite a typical technique used by um you know stores and stuff like that to say you know you, you see so many sales of right thing you know end of line sales and all that sort of stuff as soon as people think they're not going to get something anymore then suddenly demand for everything shoots through the roof and so uh, telling people that something's going to become scarce is a key driver to get getting people to want it um do you want to talk about authority yeah, I mean, we talked about compliance and obedience. Um, this is really kind of that encapsulated in authority, right? It's it's people follow the lead of credible, knowledgeable experts or those that are in hierarchical roles from them uh, that have that authority to do something. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but then also the, um, the, 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 this idea of consistency. So people like to do stuff that they've already done. So if you're agreeing with what, uh, get, getting people to agree with what they've already done, you can point out that, um, say somebody gives to charity, um, and you want them to give to your charity, you can, you can use that to say, well, you give to, you give to that other charity. So you're clearly, clearly charitable. So give to our charity as well. Um, or any, anything like that. So if you can get them to continue the behavior that they've already had, you can, you can turn that to, uh, to your advantage. Yeah. Then there's liking, um, you know, you're, you're more likely to say yes to people that you like. So be mm -hmm. likable. <laughs> it works. Um, and social proof, we've already talked about um, social proof um, in, in quite a lot of detail, but that idea of you want to be part of the group, you want to, um, if somebody else is doing something, you want to generally go along for the ride and, and, and follow what everybody else is doing. Yeah, and, and lastly, yeah, lastly is unity. Uh, us versus them. This is political parties. This is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, different groups that you feel like uh, there's uh, another group kind of opposing you. You need to be united in your thoughts. And so that's kind of the last one here for principles of influence. Now, let's let's wrap up. That's that's influence 101, folks. That's uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> social psychology. Let's let's talk about um, this in relation to the article and human factors in general. Um, you know, and I think there's there's some really interesting discussion to be had here um, potentially around sort of the way in which they measured this. Right. So they, they, they've been using a uh, computer-based game for this um, again, to remind everybody, since we've kind of gone so far from the original article, uh, <laughs> basically we're, we're talking about how our minds are distinguishing from various social influences. So all these different social influences that we just talked about, our minds are distinguishing uh, uh, from them or between them, uh, through, uh, through our brain. <laughs> My brain is clearly not working tonight. So, <laughs> so what they did is they, they, uh, did this computer-based game where the, uh, the participants had to try and remember the position of a dot displayed on the screen. They gave confidence values for their answers. However, if they were allowed to revise their guesses, they had seen uh, the answer of a computer or a virtual partner with whom they'd been introduced to before the experiment. In reality, all answers were provided by computers. So they only you know, manipulated whether or not the person thought it was a person or a computer. Um, and, and that really produced some interesting outcomes here, right? Because we're talking about the differences between uh, working with humans and versus working with computers. And there's kind of huge human factors applications here. Yeah, no, there absolutely is because the certainly when we're doing a lot more work around AI, machine learning, and things like that, we're getting more and more systems that are um, going to be providing guidance to to us as humans. And the one of the one one of the good drawouts of this, or one of the interesting drawouts, is that if somebody uh, if, if somebody was going to make a decision, they had, had that low set of confidence. Um, if they thought that the that the bit of advice being given to them was by a human, then they'd more likely match that match that advice if they if they didn't if they weren't really confident in what they were doing. If they thought that it was got, being given by a computer, then they'd be less likely to change their minds uh, because they they assume that um, they know better. So 
but as you said, the, the actual, at the baseline, all the answers were being given by computers. So you could really see that draw itself out. So if we're doing a lot more work around AI, AI systems, even everything from Alexa and Google Home and all, all things like that, all the way through to some quite, you know, some of the futuristic um, AI um, systems, how, if we're going to have that sort of relationship with them AI systems and we're just not going to trust them and we're automatically going to override them, is that going to make them sort of systems basically less trusted overall? Are they going to have the the impact that we um, truly think that they they should have? And so how we deal with that from a human factors perspective is going to be quite key because we've got to make sure that we present that information in the right way, that the, the advice because it will be advice or it will be guidance or whatever, will be taken in the way that, that we intended. Yeah, and I mean, you can always, you can always tell uh, somebody that they are talking with a human to, um, I don't know, help with that trust, right? We're talking about trust in human-robot AI teaming here. And so there's going to be, a what I see is a bunch of ethical questions of, when do you tell somebody that it is a robot versus when do you tell somebody it's a human if that robot is going to or that AI is going to give you a much more accurate assessment of the situation, especially in like the military domain, right? I can imagine this would be a very tricky uh, needle to thread. You also have um, sort of situations where it's less, uh, you know, stakes are less high. Something like chatbots. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you tell the person that, it is a chatbot or not because if you do tell them it's a chatbot they're going to be less likely to trust their answer and they're going to click through to get to a real human or do you say you know fake it i i see it sometimes like hey my name is john and i'm here to help you what can i help you with today you know and it's so obvious that it's a chatbot but it's like one of those things is how do you design around making it feel like a human but still being ethical about it i don't know it's a, it's a huge um we're not going to solve it here today on Human Factors Cast. I'm sorry if you tuned in for that. but uh. Though, on that point, if you want to read more into that, there is a book called um, Virtual Humans by um, David Burden that is all about that the, the development of, of chatbots and, and things like putting chatbots through the Turing test and things like that, which is thoroughly interesting and thoroughly recommended. Right. It'd be very interesting to see uh, where social influence falls uh, with computers that pass the Turing test and those that don't um, mm -hmm. and and you know telling them they're all robots but then kind of the ones that do pass the Turing test you're like is that really a robot I don't yeah. you know it's it's one of those things where we just don't know yet um, I think we're close but uh, we just don't know yet any other closing thoughts on this article or um, social influence yeah, I think it's the. I think it's interesting. Um, like I said, I think there's. It's it's again. It's another. It's another foundation article. Uh, foundation building block for us to work. And I think this, the the true value for me is is that bit in the difference between um, how we take AI, how we take um, influence from people, um, and and the, and the difference between the two. And it'll be interesting to see what they go on and, and study next. What about you? Do you, have you any final thoughts? Uh, this was a struggle. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, like, like, well, I do post these, these, uh, I'm, I'm the one who goes through. So, so this is all me. your own fault, <laughs> but, but like, I'm, I'm really thankful we did it because it was an exercise for us to stretch and to really think about this from a human factors perspective. I knew when I saw it, it was human mm. factors. It's one of those things. It's like, you know, what is art? Well, I know it when I'll see it. Um, and so 
for me, this was human factors in the sense that it has some underlying mechanisms that will contribute to human factors discussion. It in itself is not human factors. And so I always appreciate the ones that make us stretch far to get to that human factors application, because really uh, human factors is everything when you think about it. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I may have pulled this story, but thank you to our patrons and our everyone on Twitter who voted uh, for selecting our topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at Lud Ludwig Maximilian's University for our new story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to the original articles and our weekly roundups on our blog. Uh, you can also join us on Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. <laughs> oh, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons, uh, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show going. Thank you so much for your continued support. Uh, you know, I don't think I've mentioned this in a while. Um, mm, I'm trying to figure out which one I talk about. Let's talk about the website. We have a website. It's pretty awesome. Go check it out. Humanfactorscast.media. You can do a lot of things there. Um, and we have all sorts of fun things over there, too. We got detailed show notes uh, with you know links to any guests that might have been here on the show that week, uh, as well as embedded YouTube videos. So you can, again, see how handsome Mr. Barry Kirby is uh, when he even when he's got COVID. He's incredibly <laughs> handsome, uh, especially if you're regularly an audio listener. We do have weekly news roundups most of the time. Um, this week, we didn't have one, but most weeks we do. So you can check those out for stories that didn't make the cut. Um, there's also ways to submit your own story. So if you're working on something interesting that you think it would be a great thing for us to talk about on the show, there's a uh, submit button in the show notes. You can also search our episodes. If you are looking for specific content, you want to know uh, what's going on with influencing, you can search that and it will return every episode where we mention that. Uh, we also have conference recaps up there. And if it's been a minute since you've checked out the website, just go take a look. It's humanfactorscast.media. All right. With that, I think it's time that we get into this next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... Yes, we're switching gears. We're getting to It Came From. Uh, this week, it's all Reddit, but I think this is... Uh, we've got some good ones this week. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community are talking about. The community is talking about grammar. If you find these answers useful, uh, give us a like to help other people find this content wherever you're listening, watching, all that stuff. So we got three today. Um, let's take this first one here. This is how do you approach prioritization for a product that is very broken? What techniques would you use to find the severe issues? This is by Chicken Crawl Crew on the user experience subreddit. 
They go on to write, let's say you've identified that in your online store, the search is the most important experience and everything is broken. Search filters don't work or act as expected. It's bloated. The UX is absolutely horrible. Categories make no sense. Naming of features make no sense. Selecting a few uh, feature shows results, but the results don't seem to contain the thing you selected. How do you identify all issues, uh, technical and design, or and prioritize them best? Anything besides doing a heuristic review? Barry, how would you approach this situation? I'd start again by the sounds of it. Um, I think there is, I mean, almost semi seriously on that point there is certain times when you if you've got something like that and that just sounds like like a horror story that um sometimes it's easy to just start again go and work out right what what, what is your if, if it's not ex, if it's not meeting what you expect in terms of a user experience what is the user experience go back to basics in terms of what are your user stories um and the workflows that you're expecting and start it through again the other one I quite like to use to justify that, I guess, is like things like cognitive walkthrough, that that type of approach of, again, it's just going through, right, what, what is it you're expecting? Detail it. And yeah, I, but just from that, I, I would rip it to bits and, and start again because because I quite like doing that sort of thing. What about you, Nick? How, how would you, I'm sure you'd take a, a much more considered approach to just uh. a big help. I don't know. I think I think the tear it down and, and try it again is is a good approach, but let's say you don't have that option, right? I think there are some clever ways to sort of suggest a major overhaul with some simple tricks. Uh, PMs hate this one simple trick. Um, So (laughs) like what I would do is I would sit down some users and really talk about, um, you know, do kind of a card sorting exercise of features, right? What is the most, what is the thing that you need? Um, to be 100%, you know, and, and kind of have them sort by that way. And that way you have some sort of uh, indication of priority for what's important to the users, right? Search is a whole thing. And yes, it's broken, but are you going to fix the results first? Because that's what they're most interested in. Are you going to do filters first because they need to be able to have that functionality and that might result in better results? It really comes down to you know, what the search is intended to do for your product, because, you know, search could be broken, but what if it's like a very minor part of your other product, like your whole product? What if it's, what if your product is mostly controls um, and really searches for like minor things like settings? You know, it, it doesn't make sense to do a whole overhaul for something like that. So really how big is the problem in relation to the rest of the product? And then understanding what um, sort of requirements are, are needed from the user perspective, right? I think that's kind of a conservative approach to uh, maybe not tear down the whole thing and start over. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, part of me says that if something, I mean, because they've said everything is broken. Um, part of me says that would I would I go out to users at that point? Um, would I, should I not be able to pull in from either my own experiences or at least be able to, you know, if it's a store, then one of the things I've got to be able to do is sell something. Um, I'm going to be able to see what I'm going to be able to sell. I should be able to at least hit, hit the top three things that need to be working out of an online store. That That isn't rocket science. Um, no, yeah. And getting that work. But it depends what they mean by, you know, my version of everything is broken is possibly um, less dramatic than what their version of on you know, everything is broken. If it's truly broken, I'm an engineer. Hit it with a hammer. Um, 
But if it's if it is a bit more nuanced than that, then then I think you should be able to rely on your skills as an HR practitioner. But then yes, if it, it if it's much more nuanced, then then bring users in and and do that. It, it depends on yeah severity, I guess. Uh, oh, it it depends. Are you telling me that something oh, in yeah. human factors depends? Yeah, I like look, I, I didn't even cue that up. Didn't think no, about you didn't. <laughs> look, yeah. it, it really does, right? It, it, how severe is the product? You say it's it's very broken. Everything is broken, but really, what is salvageable from it? And you should know, like you said, Barry, like what the top couple issues are. I think you could go out if it makes sense to do. I don't know. I was talking about generally, right? I wasn't mm, talking yeah, about yeah, search. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's go into this next one here. This is feeling very overwhelmed with my new job. This is by Mango Strudel on the experience user experience subreddit. I just landed a job as the only designer, or we can say human factors engineer, or UX researcher, or whatever it is. It's all applicable at a startup because I had five years of experience working as the sole designer for startups. Uh, I am two days in and I realize that being the only designer at all times has created bad habits in me. My methods are not as clean and it's the first time that I have someone in the company, my direct boss and CTO, who have some level of experience in Figma. To be honest, he knows more than me. Just isn't as experienced with the visual design. I feel like I can't fake it till I make it here. Like in all the other jobs I had so far, the fact that this is on an entirely new subject matter, AI, isn't helping me either. Since today's three-hour meeting, I understood almost nothing. I'm working from home today, and I am having panic attacks constantly. Will this get better? Am I in over my head? Too long didn't read. Am I panicking about a new job? Barry, have you been in this situation? And yes, what do you recommend? I was in this situation last week. Um, so <clears throat> literally, I've started a, um, a new project, and it's in a subject area that I know a bit about, um, but not a vast amount about. I know my role in it um, exceptionally well, because it's called about human factors integration. Um, but the actual subject of it is something I haven't touched on since university. And so from that perspective, I'm about 20 odd years out of date. So yeah, I, I completely get where you're coming from. The um, What I would say is that you've joined a team and they wouldn't have hired you if they didn't see the skills that you had because presumably they asked you if you've had skills and you told them you had some skills and, pro and probably in this sort of role, you probably demonstrated some sort of skills as well. And me, COVID. Um, so trust them to a certain extent that they've hired, that they've hired you. They might have some some more experience, um, like saying in Figma or any other tool. It doesn't really matter. And but they, do, you've said yourself, they don't have the same experience as you in in visual design. So go with it. That that's your role in the team. Bring that social, uh, bring that visual design to the team. And you know, if you if you lean on them to learn more about Figma from them, if they've got more experience, that that's that's fabulous. Crack on. Um, it, you're only a couple of days in. Uh, whenever you start a new project, I don't even if it's not with a new new company, it's the same company um, or whatever. As soon as you, when you start a new project, you are learning new stuff all of the time. You you will feel swamped, um, but don't panic. You it will all become fine. Um, if you're still feeling like this in sort of six months' time, that's when you start asking the questions. Um, but for a couple of days in, into a job, I mean, it, um, have you learned how to fill out your timesheet yet? Um, because right. no doubt there'll be a new system for that. And let's face it, most companies, that's the most important thing. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think just don't stop panicking, breathe. Um, 
and realize that you've got you've they've they've hired you because of your skills not because the skills that um that they've already got you've got you you're bringing something new to the table yep you took my answer barry they hired you for a reason i think i think what you're experiencing here is imposter syndrome and uh i mean you are overwhelmed because yes it's a new domain um i know a lot of people who work in uh contracting where like you said, Barry, you might get introduced to a new contract that is a completely different domain, and it's your job to understand. But not on day three, or, uh, mm. you know, not on day three. You, you don't need to understand everything about artificial intelligence on day three. Take your time and learn. They expect it. You know, like um, I just switched domains recently, too, and I am still completely lost. And that's OK. Right. It's going to take me time to understand. Uh, it, I. I feel a little uh, nervous about not knowing, but then it's, it's okay. You know, it imposter syndrome is a real thing. As long as you're not, um, as long as you can do the job, you know, and if you can't communicate that, you know, you need a little bit more information or time or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't see this as uh, yeah. Like, like you said, Barry, six months, maybe, but three days. Nah. I mean, let's face it. Learning about AI is a day five thing, not a day three thing. Right. Uh, yeah. Three hour um, meeting is like definitely not a first week thing. I don't know. Uh, and if you want to talk about imposter syndrome, then we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But yeah. um... <laughs> all right. Last one up here. Uh, Barry, you chose this one because it's very controversial. Um, this one is paper prototyping is the biggest waste of time ever. This is from the uh, user experience subreddit. This is, hi, I'm from Uranus uh, or Uranus, depending on how you read it. Anyway, so <laughs> they go on to write, so I'm working on an app concept and I wanted to try paper prototyping just for fun. So the first thing is I needed paper, pen and scissors, but I don't have any scissors on hand. So I had to spend some time just finding a scissor. And having the tools I needed, then it was over to drawing. I started by drawing up some iPhone mockups. I figured I could start with 10. I started to draw some user flows. I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, after drawing some mockups, I realized I wanted to change a button placement. Now I have to do everything all over. After drawing up all the screens for a very specific user flow, I had to spend some time cutting out all the mockups. Then user testing, switching out a screen for another takes so much time that users lost context with what they were doing. I also realized that my handwriting were more sloppy than I thought. So I spent 10 times the time with paper prototyping compared to creating a low fidelity prototype in Figma. And the whole experience sucked for everyone and I got nothing out of it. Barry, uh, do you feel that paper prototyping is the biggest waste of time ever? I can see from their story why they would think that. However, just think yourself lucky that you're able to use something like a tool like Figma in order to do it. Um, what I would suggest is having worked in you know defense for quite a while there are there are times when you you just can't use um fancy new cool tools um and you know and this isn't just um mocking things up this could be trials this could be anything pen and paper you've got to be able to rock it back to pen and paper however what i would say in, in the description as well is of, of um nick of what you read out was it seems maybe they've gone too um too in-depth on there on their paper mockups paper mockups should be there they should be relatively lightweight they should be um fun and actually if you're draw drawing everything out actually you're missing half the fun because half the half the fun there is getting the users themselves to draw them out and because it's if you're doing it as part of a um that that session um then you know you don't just get the users to test it but you can actually get them to do some of the work as well um so 
yeah, I think there's um, there, there are tools out there that you can they can use, as you said, Figma. There, there's there's others, but um, that make it seem a lot quicker. But sometimes just going back to pen and paper is is just just the thing to do. Maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know. No, I, I mean I've been in the same situation. You you need to take pen and paper into secure locations where you can't have access to fun fancy tools. The thing that I have like issues. I hate to like call people out, but like this, this post is uh, frustrating for a variety of reasons. I'm the, the sentence I wanted to try paper prototyping just for fun. Why would you not plan it? Um, why would you just in the moment decide to do it and then get frustrated when you don't have the materials to do so? Like it, it, it requires planning. It requires thought. And the fact that just on a whim, I'm going to try this. And then the fact that you're drawing the mock-ups you know, in, in a certain fidelity and the fact that they're, you're drawing them with a button placed on the layout yeah. already, that is part of the issue. You draw that out separately. So that way you can move it around on the overall layout. It's just, this is very frustrating to me, Barry. I think that the advice that you've given is very good. Um, this is a, uh, this is a situation where you need to be better prepared um, and it is a tool in the toolbox. And, you know, if, if it's more efficient for you or the right tool for the job, then do it. Um, but, you know, if you are better at creating low fidelity mockups in Figma, then do that. Um, I don't know. I just I have a whole lot of problems with I, I hate calling people out, but this post is just so frustrating. No, it does. And it, it, I was going to sort of wrap up with some, with some of them bits around, you know, if you're sat, sat there going, um, right, we've got a we've got a, um, a prototyping session today. Right, it's got to start in half an hour. I know, we're going to do pen and paper as well. So you know, and then you've got to do all that prep work. Well, yeah, of course it's going to suck. Um, if you do an iPhone mockups, you know, why why sit there and dry for dry um, draw iPhone mockups? One iPhone mockup, photocopier done. Um, you know, and if if you're doing them bits, and like you say, then you're then you you're printing out your your objects, your artifacts, or you know that's what you move around, you draw on. I think you've maybe read the book, but not swallowed the lesson, um, possibly. Um, and yeah, you know, you need, you need to use the right tool, use the right tool for the right job, and all of that. Yeah, but it's fun. Yep. I, I quite like the contentious ones. <laughs> so not controversial at all in our mind. All right, let's just move on. Uh, this one needs no introduction. It's one more thing, Barry. What is your one more thing this week? So. In interesting and exciting news, um, we're going to buy an electric vehicle. I say buy. We're going, we're going to lease, we're going to lease an electric vehicle because they're way too expensive. With um, all that Patreon money, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a Patreon and the, and the coffee money. You know, it's it's finally all come in and hey, great. I can't wait. If only. Um, but no, so we we buy an EV, which is um, or going to lease an EV, which is very very exciting. And there's loads of stuff around that. But the one thing I've got, I don't know whether this uh, this applies in the same way in the states. But there is, when we first started talking about EVs, there was sort of one main network for charging. And, um, you know, you just rock up and there was a plug, plug it in the car. I mean, how hard can that be, really? But, of course, now as they become more popular, there's more, you know, there's no such thing as free electricity anymore. But, you know, the different network, the different people who own the chargers obviously want to make some money back um, because you're basically taking their electricity. And so now there seems to be a whole bunch of different network providers in the area that I live in South Wales, there seems to be about 10 or 15 different electricity network, car charging networks, 
that you will need a different card for um, and all this sort of stuff. So the complexity of this new of, of EV buy now doesn't seem to be about range and stuff like that because, you know, that's getting better. But it's, I'm going to need to walk around with a whole like, flexi wallet full of about 20 or 30 RFID cards just to be able to use the charges that I might need to use on, on longer journeys. I just there's just there's got to be a solution here. There really has to. Um, so I think I'm I'm at that at that nervous tentative air, air point where um, I don't know quite how it's going to work. I don't know quite. I know it's going to involve a lot of change of behaviour um, and changing attitude. And because first time I've ever owned a brand new car, um, and not wanting to scratch it, um, and things like that. So it's quite an exciting time, but also quite um, scary as well. Here's what you do. You, you have a separate wallet that you just keep in your car that's just EV cards. Um, and you, you have your other wallet that you carry with you everywhere. And whenever you go to an EV charging station, you just take out that wallet, pay, and then, um, you know, leave it leave it uh, in there. And we have to sign up to all of these different networks to make it happen. And so I've got to work out where they all are, what they do, and all that sort of stuff. Apparently, most of them will take contactless now. Yeah, um, we'll make a spreadsheet. Help. And then, uh, well, you know. And, and a bit of a map. And, yeah, and all this yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, but, a uh, spreadsheet, a map, pull it up on your uh, Tesla dashboard and call it done. You, not Tesla. a Tesla. Not, not, a, Tesla. not a Tesla. Ooh. So, yeah. Well, apparently, other EVs do exist. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, okay. Uh, you, you're ready for dorky. Um, so my one more thing this week, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a show and tell. So I'll try to describe it best I can for the audio listeners. Um, I bought an adjustable gooseneck phone clip. Now, what this means, uh, we're going to get a little dorky here for a second. Uh, what this actually means is that, um, I, it's, it's a, it's a device, uh, that you put around your neck and it has a magnetic clip in the front. And now I can look at my phone or whatever I want. It's a perfect time to freeze too. Uh, <laughs> That's perfect. So to describe the scene, Nick's got this what looks like a collar on with a magnetic magnetic thing in the front of it, and but the camera has frozen. In fact, now the camera is now crashed. Yeah. Now that's yeah, camera genius. crashed. So um, you know, this is actually a good break. exercise. This is actually that's a good great. exercise because I'll need to uh, describe it for everyone. So yes, I am. I am. Uh, I have this like little gooseneck thing that goes around my neck, and it is uh, effectively. Um, a phone holder that puts your phone out, uh, you know, like 12 inches from your face and you can like look at your stuff while you're laying down in bed or uh, on the couch and it's just right there in front of you or you can play games, you know, on a, on a, anyway, so I liked it so much that I got another one that clips on the top of my headboard and displays the phone right in, on top of my face while I'm like looking upwards. So I don't have to like crane my neck or anything. Um, Pretty great and uh, would highly recommend it. You know that thing that you're not meant to take your phone to bed with you. Oh yes, uh, yes, I, I'm I'm aware. Okay, so now yeah. you're just buying more things to enable that even more. Yeah. What What about it? What I mean, like I don't know. So what? you're you're not meant to take your phone to bed with you. You're meant to leave it downstairs um, or in another room. Um, I'm really bad at this, by, by the way, because it's got my alarm on it, um, and not look at it through the night. Because if you look at it through the night, then um, the, just just the light of it and the, it, it's sparking your brain into going means that it's going to uh, going to do things and make you not sleep very well. Yeah, well, you know, the, you, there are some sacrifices that that you make, and uh, 
That is one of them. So, uh, yeah. Does your gooseneck make you happy? My, my gooseneck makes me happy. Um, well, that's and all I, will, then. I will show more of it in the post show for those watching. all right well that's gonna be it for today everyone if you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion around influencing uh, human behavior we encourage you to go check out and listen to episode 208 where we talked about how work pandemic protocols influence human behavior employee behavior it's all the same comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion you can always reach out to us on our discord community visit our official website mentioned it's a pretty cool resource sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple things you can do leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening watching now uh that is free for you to do two you can tell your friends about us word of mouth really helps us grow and uh we we like that (laughs) podcast growing is is a sign of uh, it's a good thing uh and three consider supporting us on patreon if um if you have the funds to do so and want to support the show you can certainly do it that way. We are putting it, putting that money to good use, I think. Uh, and as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners uh, find you if they want to talk about what the story is next week? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K. Or if you want to come listen to me, which are on to guests and talk to some really interesting people, um, find me at 1202 podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.